Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Kachuk Muradian to discuss his book, The Resistance Network, The Armenian Genocide and Humanitarianism in Ottoman Syria, 1915 to 1918. Thanks for tuning in. The Resistance Network is the history of an underground network of humanitarians, missionaries, and diplomats in Ottoman Syria who helped save the lives of thousands during the Armenian Genocide. The book challenges depictions of Armenians as passive victims of violence and subjects of humanitarianism, demonstrating the key role they played in organizing a humanitarian resistance against the destruction of their people. Piecing together hundreds of accounts, official documents, and missionary records, Meridian presents a social history of genocide and resistance in wartime Aleppo and a network of transit and concentration camps stretching from Bab to Ras Ulain and Derzor. He ultimately argues that despite the violent and systematic mechanisms of control and destruction in the cities, concentration camps, and massacre sites in this region, the genocide of the Armenians did not progress unhindered. Unarmed resistance proved an important factor in saving countless lives. I'm pleased to welcome Kachuk Muradian to the show today. He is a lecturer in Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University and the editor of the peer-reviewed journal, The Armenian Review. In 2020, Dr. Muradian was awarded a Humanities War and Peace Initiative grant from Columbia University. Kachik, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested to talk about your book and excited about the sort of bold claims that it makes and the bold direction that it lays out for studies of the Armenian genocide. I think to get a bit of a footing on the issue, it's important that we start maybe with some thinking about how the genocide has been talked about by historians and what the historiography has typically tended to do in its depiction of um, the genocide and its victims. Could you tell us a little bit about what that narrative has been and what it's looked like? Yes. The Armenian genocide, the destruction of the Armenian population of the Ottoman Empire uh, during World War I, has been studied as the second best studied case of mass violence after the Holocaust. Yet for a case around which and about which there's so much scholarship, there are certain important blind spots. And uh, one of these blind spots is the way in which the crime of genocide is presented and the way in which the Armenian victims are portrayed. So in a typical narrative, we will see that the Armenians are portrayed as passive victims of, on the one hand, violence. So the Ottoman Turkish authorities deporting beginning in April 1915, the the indigenous Armenian population of the Ottoman Empire and massacring them. And this is on the one hand. And on the other, Armenians are portrayed as passive recipients of humanitarian aid, particularly Western humanitarian aid. And again, in both cases, Armenians are sort of the objects of destruction on the one hand and the objects of humanitarianism on the other. So what I sort of try to do in my book is talk about Armenians also as subjects, emphasizing the role they played in resisting primarily through unarmed methods, this genocidal onslaught, and at the same time, engaging actively in humanitarian work alongside the Western Western missionaries. I appreciate that you emphasized unarmed resistance in your response there, because one of the ways that you characterize the historiography as lacking is in its emphasis on armed resistance as the primary like way in which folks like Armenians and, and Jews in Holocaust Germany resisted genocide. Has that changed much or is there still that kind of emphasis in the field on violent resistance to genocidal programs? The field of Holocaust studies has changed tremendously the landscape in recent decades. In fact, nowadays it is more common to see a broader 
definition, understanding of the idea, the concept of genocide and resistance to it, in fact, in the case of the Holocaust. In other cases, including the Armenian case, this emphasis on the destruction and in rare cases where there were indeed episodes of armed resistance, some studies of these episodes are still largely the norm. There are a number of reasons for this, for these two important points that we are raising now. One is that the, the emphasis on the Armenians being victims, on the one hand of the perpetrators and on the other being these recipients of aid, and on the other, the resistance aspect not being highlighted. And these reasons can be complicated, but at the core of it, we have the issue of, on the one hand, the denial of the Armenian genocide. So for the longest time, in an environment where the Turkish state has continued its, its official policy to deny the Armenian genocide, what has happened is that scholars of the Armenian genocide have focused on rebutting this denialist rhetoric and discourse emanating from the Turkish state. The scholarship has focused on that. And in that kind of narrative, it's as if emphasizing the victimhood was a way to emphasize that this was indeed a genocide. So it was a way of fighting against denial. In reality, no genocide progresses unhindered. People do not just, contrary to the way we think, often people think about this, people don't just go to their deaths like sheep. They are making decisions every step of the way. And these decisions often involve incremental, small, sometimes insignificant, you know, from the neutral observer's perspective, efforts that do amount to pushing back, that do amount to resistance. And it's important to see this full spectrum of reactions and within which the full spectrum of ways in which people resist and not just focus on armed resistance, because it's problematic to think about the fact that it is just a piece of metal that propels bullets that will be the indication of whether uh, human beings are resisting. Unfortunately, though, as, as we've been discussing, this has been the, uh, the focus and the emphasis whenever, if at all, there has been an engagement and a conversation about resistance. I'm glad that you mentioned the Turkish government's policy to deny the reality of the genocide too, because I think that that seems also to have shaped the narrative in this way on the part of how we think about the perpetrators, that if we want to call it a genocide, then it has to be a sort of rigid, systematic sort of, I'm struggling for words to describe it, but a kind of unresistible force that comes in and could only be stopped with violence as opposed to these other kinds of nonviolent resistance techniques that you're talking about. Could you say a little bit about that idea, about what you call in the book the genocidal process? I think it's really especially important to understand that we're talking about how this played out in Syria, which is somewhat distant from the center of power in Istanbul. So when we think about the Armenian genocide, it is perhaps here a 60-second summary of, of, of what happens would be helpful. Uh, the Armenian genocide begins during World War I in April 1915 with the arrest of Armenian intellectuals, uh, writers, thinkers, political figures in Istanbul and across the Ottoman Empire and with the orders of deportation of the Armenian population, again, empire-wide, these deportations progress in phases. So certain areas are deported, people in Armenians in certain areas are deported earlier in the year, others later in 1915. And as a process, this initial phase of deportation is accompanied by massacres, forced marches, death marches, essentially, during which hundreds of thousands of Armenians are killed or die of exposure, disease, starvation. Yet several hundreds of thousands of others arrive in what is supposed to be their destination, where they're supposed to be settled, Ottoman Syria. 
And the book essentially focuses on that region. And this is the region where, in 1916, the most brutal massacres of the Armenian genocide are going to take place, including the, the largest massacre in the region of Derzor, where around 200,000 Armenians, mostly women and children, are killed. So by focusing on this region, which is one of the most violent in this genocidal process, I try to demonstrate how genocide really does not evolve or progress unhindered. You know, the way you are articulating it in a question, this is not some kind of systematic, relentless, unstoppable process, although it will look like that from the outside. I sometimes think of it as some kind of avalanche that's coming down and it's taking all the trees in its way and destroying it from a distance. We all we see is that the avalanche is overpowering everything in its way. But it's worth thinking about the fact that every single tree in its way is pushing back. Some of them are not successful ultimately, but when we look closer to the process, we see how there is an action and there is a reaction. So I do believe that this is what the, the book sort of tries to demonstrate by looking at one of the toughest, most difficult regions in the context of the Armenian genocide. I wonder if we could spend a little more time on thinking about what characterizes that region, because you do such interesting work in the book to talk about how different aspects of life in the region, even down to sort of like infrastructure aspects of the city of Aleppo, were used to facilitate these kinds of resistance networks. Can you say a little more about what life was like for those who arrived in Syria and what they found there? The book focuses on a triangle formed by Aleppo, Rasuline, and Derzor in Ottoman Syria. And in this region, it explores the way in which both in urban and rural areas, the way in which the genocide process unfolded and the way in which Armenians who were targeted resisted it. And as such, it is sort of an exploration that in the first half emphasizes the experience of Armenians in this urban environment and the way in which the genocide was unfolding and the effort to resist it was occurring in the city of Aleppo. And then in the second half, the focus shifts towards rural areas, concentration camps along the Euphrates River and uh, Derezor, where ultimately in the summer of 1916, uh, 200,000 Armenians are going to be massacred. So focusing on this region, I try to explore the genocidal process, the policies of the central authorities and how those policies are being enacted on the ground by local and regional authorities, how these discrepancies between these, uh, the, the application operates in the region. And at the same time, I explore, and this is at the core of the book, the way in which in the urban fabric of Aleppo, a network of resistors forms comprising of Armenians, be they Armenians who lived in Aleppo or deportees who are arriving in the region, Western missionaries and diplomats, including the US consul in Aleppo, Jesse Jackson, as well as local Muslims, Jews, and others who are also joining this effort. So this is a, a network that ultimately forms beginning in 1915, initially doing humanitarian work, and ultimately as the central authorities start persecuting these activists and humanitarians, they go underground and form a network of humanitarian resistance. And I make this distinction because I define a resistance as actions aimed at hindering the genocidal efforts of the perpetrators and in engaging in acts that are against their will or their sanction. So in that context, this is uh, in this region, I look both in the first half of the book the urban dimension at the urban dimension and the way in which there's this network that is emerging. 
and in rural areas where even in concentration camps, even in remote areas where it is very difficult to really mount any uh, effort to help people, save people, help people escape, I demonstrate how this resistance effort is quite effective in saving many lives. Could you say just a tiny bit more about the sort of discrepancy between orders from the central authority and sort of local and regional applications of those? I feel like it's easy to say that there was resistance, but it's harder to see what the resistance was to, do you know? Obviously, it's resistance to a genocidal process overall, but what were the fields for action? Do you know, like, what were some of the ways in which folks could resist? And did they depend on the uneven application of orders from the central authority? So as these deportees are arriving beginning in May 1915, there is a local Armenian community in Aleppo. At this point, this community has no idea that it's the Armenian population of the entire empire that is being deported. And pretty soon, hundreds of thousands are going to be arriving in the region. So initially, it's a, you, know, you have a few hundred deportees, survivors trickling into Aleppo. And the community, the local community, immediately starts organizing relief efforts. Initially, they receive support from the local Ottoman Turkish authorities. So, and this is perhaps one example of how this process develops in an uneven manner. So while the central authorities are busy coordinating the deportations and massacres of Armenians across the empire, on the edges of the empire, you have those survivors who are arriving, essentially finding support, not just from the local Armenian community, but also from the local authorities. Ultimately though, as these initial rounds of deportations are underway, the focus of the central authorities uh, goes towards Syria, which is where most of the survivors are arriving. And then we have another set of orders being issued. And wherever you have recalcitrant officials, wherever you have officials, including the governor of, of Aleppo, who are assisting the Armenians, they are removed from their positions and they are replaced by other Ottoman officials who elsewhere in the empire have already proven their keenness and willingness to engage in brutal actions, massacres, and dispossession. So it is interesting that on the one hand, you know, this is a process that is at different points is transforming in the region of Aleppo. Initially, you will see in many of these officials a willingness to help the deportees, and then ultimately many of these officials are going to be replaced. Still, up until the end of World War I, there will still be officials who are going to mostly covertly assist many of these efforts to help the deportees. And what did these efforts, what were these efforts? This was anything from providing food to the deportees, shelter, a hiding place, to saving abducted women and children, to allowing Armenian intellectuals who, are, who have escaped or managed to escape these initial rounds of arrests, some sa- safe passage into certain areas, to distributing aid, assistance, medicine in to faraway areas in Syria. For example, as I mentioned earlier, the the network of concentration camps along the Euphrates River. All of these efforts were part of what this network was engaging in. In addition to informing Western diplomats and missionaries about what is going on. At this point, the world newspapers, Western governments are well aware of what is going on largely again because of this effort to secretly smuggle information, details, sometimes photographs to places like the UK, Russia, the United States, etc. 
you've already mentioned a few of the different kinds of groups that were interested in helping you you know you've got missionaries you've got western humanitarians you've got folks on the ground you know armenians already living in aleppo or or elsewhere in syria who are trying to help out you know you use the word network in the book and i know that there's a sort of whole field of of network thinking and and thinking about the ways in which you know we use networks to make things happen and organize things could you talk a little bit about how formally these networks were organized, how much they may have had to do with each other? I was thinking, especially as you were talking about got folks who are distributing food, others who are trying to get information out of Syria for the wider world to really understand what's happening there. How coordinated were these resistance efforts or were they also sort of decentralized? This was a network that by and large, most of the nodes really, depending on, let me take a step back, depending on the geography and the region, the network was looser or more closely interconnected. So in the case of Aleppo, you have a situation where different Armenian churches, several Armenian committees and groups that are engaging in this kind of work are coordinating their efforts closely. At the same time, some of the influential figures in the city including Armenians and others, are helping with providing information, assistance, resources. And therefore, this network is very tightly connected. And you do see a lot of interaction between these elements and everybody really working with one another in real time. And we see this because I, I use sources like minutes of meetings and accounts hundreds of memoirs that really allow me to reconstruct what is going on in the city of Aleppo. Now, the farther away we move from the urban environment, particularly into these uh, rural areas, desert areas, concentration camps, it becomes more difficult to have that kind of connection. Many of the individuals who are involved in this effort are loosely connected to the network or are people who are traveling from Aleppo secretly at night entering these concentration camps to provide medication, assistance, or to help in whatever way possible. So in many ways, there are certain points where the network is quite working quite closely and, uh, and, and in other places is a loosely connected group of people who are doing this kind of work. Ultimately, thinking about it as a a network is helpful is because this is an operation that does not just rely on on individuals in a reality where most of these individuals who engage in these efforts will, at some point between 1915 and 1917, either be killed or die of diseases like typhus, dysentery, and many other uh, diseases that are spreading in, in the region they will be arrested or they will be exiled. So what keeps this effort together and helps these humanitarians and resistors really manage to do their work until the end of the war is the fact that as one person is arrested, as uh, many are exiled or killed, there's others who are continuing their work and and, and this operation is continuing. So in many ways, thinking about this as individuals engaging in action will not give a full picture of what is going on because there's a clear coordinated effort between Western missionaries, some diplomats, many Armenians, as well as some other locals. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Kachuk Moradian, author of The Resistance Network, The Armenian Genocide and Humanitarianism in Ottoman Syria, 1915 through 1918. The idea that folks were able to step in after others were arrested, killed, or died, you know, from disease or, or what have you, it, it does make me wonder about, you know, still a little bit how formalized these things were, because it almost sounds like there's a, you know, an open role in distributing aid or something like that, uh, that someone could step into and, and really easily understand um, how it works and, and what what's possible and what to do. 
But it also makes me wonder, did the local authorities sort of turn a blind eye to those activities if they were that formalized? Or was there a degree to which some of the sort of interaction with Western humanitarianism or some of these aid groups were able to operate openly to some degree because they weren't interpreted as, you know, resisting? So in the case of, for example, American missionaries, in 1915-1916, this is before the United States has entered the war, you have missionaries that are receiving uh, aid from the United States that is arriving to the region via the consul. There's a huge effort, fundraising effort, happening in the United States beginning in September 1915 and through until the end of the war and then for years after that, one of the first major humanitarian uh, efforts that uh, in the United States that raises a couple of billion dollars in today's money for Armenian and Syrian relief. And what happens is that the, so the funds oftentimes are coming, not always, but often are coming from outside. What is happening on the ground is you have this network of Armenian couriers who are risking their lives, getting, receiving these packages these funds from, say, the U.S. Consul in Aleppo, and then risking their lives secretly going into these spaces such as concentration camps around Aleppo and beyond to distribute these funds or resources or medicine, what have you. So it's critical as, as we try to think about this, to try to see that even though, uh, as you say, some of these actors will have some kind of protection and some ability to openly operate, Clearly, we know today that from Ottoman documents, other sources that, for example, the U.S. consul in Aleppo was constantly being watched, constantly being harassed. He himself talks about this. We know that several missionaries, a Swiss teacher that I talk about in the book, will at some point after pressure, arrests, murders, they will stop some of their operations one Swiss teacher who is doing tremendous work in Aleppo and beyond, she will have a nervous breakdown after witnessing what is happening to the people, to the Armenians she's working with, who go as emissaries, couriers into the desert to provide assistance and then never come back. And uh, she will have a nervous breakdown and will leave the country. Her friends and colleagues will take her out of uh, the Ottoman Empire. So even for those who sort of have some kind of protection, the genocide will take a great toll. Yet ultimately, the people who are really in the midst of this, who are really being attacked, targeted, are the very emissaries who are serving as the intermediaries, many of them Armenians, but also, as I mentioned, Arabs, Jews, others who are uh, engage in this for the entire entire duration of the war. We I, I talk about, for example, an Assyrian man who dies of typhus that he contacts from Armenian deportees in, in Derzor. I talk about Reverend Eskijan of the Armenian Protestant Church in Aleppo, who will die in early 1916 of, again, typhus that will contract from deportees. Others will be arrested. So their, their narratives, their experiences do show a range of ways in which they are impacted by this, with, again, ultimately, the, the Armenians bearing the brunt of the genocidal onslaught. Hearing you talk about some of the individuals who comprise this resistance network, I think is, is really important. And it does, it does highlight one of the things that really distinguishes your book, which is to try to take the focus off of you know, perpetrators and victims and start thinking about the real complicated everyday people who were trying to you know, resist the terror as it unfolded. One of the groups that I think you spent particular time you know, thinking about is the role of women and the way that women's contributions have been sort of left out of the historiography of, these, of this event. Could you say a little bit more about women in particular and what they contributed and how it has been overlooked? I think the very challenge of 
looking, sifting through the, the archival documents and thinking about this and also looking at the histori historiography, we see that by just thinking of resistance as armed resistance immediately means that there are thousands of women who are involved in unarmed resistance whose efforts are immediately discounted, completely ignored. So the moment we have a broader definition, articulation of what constitutes resistance, right? We are immediately looking at a more representative picture of this resistance effort that involves women in, in key positions, in key roles, and oftentimes even children. And I document the way in which even children are not, again, not just victims, not just in a situation where they're supposed to be cared for, but they're playing a critical role in this resistance effort. For example, in the case of women, I demonstrate how in Aleppo, at the core of the network, there are several women playing a critical role. One is a woman by the name of Nora Altunian, who will be an important interlocutor with a number of influential figures in the city. Another is a nurse midwife who will be uh, single-handedly save the lives of hundreds of women by coming up with paperwork and anchoring them in Aleppo because of her own uh, prominent role as a nurse in the Ottoman military. So these are like interesting interactions. And at the same time, you will see that when I focus at the core of this organized structure in Aleppo, some of these committees are often almost exclusively comprised of men. But the looser the network becomes, the farther away from the center, from Aleppo, you have women also taking uh, leadership roles, significant, playing a significant role in the concentration camps, establishing orphanages under tents, under horrendous conditions, standing up against Ottoman officials, Ottoman soldiers, Ottoman gendarmes. And much of this is, is documented in, in, in detail in the book. And just one additional point, and in this, in, in many ways, this is an effort, this, this book is an effort to really show the genocidal process in one region and the range of responses by the victims and others. And in this range, I make sure to demonstrate that, you know, it's not that every single person is putting their lives in danger to save others, right? There are some people who are collaborating, there are others who are engaging in really serious problematic, taking advantage of their fellow Armenians, deportees, survivors. Yet there are also many who are engaging in this range of activities that comprise resistance. And in that, the book tries to show how women, men, children, all carried their share of the burden in pushing back against this onslaught. Could you elaborate a little bit on the role of children? I think for me, it's, you know, it's sort of once you get over that initial binary thinking about the, you know, the narrative of victims and perpetrators, it's kind of easy to start or it's easier to start to imagine that there are all kinds of individual actors, as you say, doing any number of things from trying to take advantage of refugees to trying to help them. It's harder for me to imagine children who are, of course, in the middle of this process, but what kinds of things uh, were children doing to help with the resistance effort? Perhaps it would be good to give an example from Aleppo and an example from the concentration camps as sort of a representative sample of sorts. In Aleppo, there is the case, we know of the case of a group of children who will fend for themselves for the entire duration of the war essentially living and guarding the trash of one of the most prominent hotels, Hotel Baron in the city of Aleppo, and essentially fend for themselves for the entire duration of the war. This is happening in an environment where oftentimes, both in Armenian historiography and in, in the scholarship in general, children are typically thought of as, you know, in circumstances such as this, as you know, children in orphanages. There's always a caretaker, right? There's, there's an orphanage. 
if their parents are killed, there's, there are other caretakers. But, you know, I demonstrate examples of, you know, individual efforts of self-help in terms of, you know, these children taking their matters into their own hands and surviving through these horrendous times without that kind of institutional structure, which I also cover. I cover orphans as well in the book. In the concentration camps, an example of actual participation in the resistance network would be the case of many children who will connect different concentration camps. So the second half of the book heavily focuses on concentration camps during the Armenian genocide. And these camps, people were not allowed to come out. These were heavily guarded camps in the middle of the desert. And at nighttime, children would take messages, convey messages from one camp to the other, oftentimes essentially walking all night, secretly entering the other camp, and then during the day begging there in order to get some food to eat and waiting again, conveying, communicating the messages, waiting again, and then at night making the trip back. We have some memoirists and chroniclers have referred to some of these children as human newspapers. In certain cases, they carried notes. In other cases, the message was written on their backs. So ultimately, these children serving as human newspapers is an example of how they're being part of this effort as opposed to just being taken care of one way or the other. And it does highlight the sort of tragic innovation of, you know, folks who need to find ways to communicate with each other, who need to preserve connection with each other and, and a kind of network of, of support and sustenance, um, even in the bleakest conditions. Could you say a little more, you, you sort of started to introduce, we've, we've been talking mostly about uh, resistance located in Aleppo. How did that network look differently at those camps along the Euphrates? So as the central authorities start cracking down on efforts in places like Aleppo, urban areas, and as diseases start spreading, many of these deportees are suffering from you know, diseases, uh, malnutrition, and many of these cases like typhus, typhoid fever, dysentery starts also spreading among the local population and the central authorities will make decisions about shutting down cities like Aleppo to arriving Armenian deportees and sending them directly to concentration camp so that they die alone. And whoever was already in Aleppo, these people were are also forced out, placed in transit camps around Aleppo and then from there redeported in the direction of these concentration camps. So what is happening is that beginning in the second half of 1915 and for months in 1916, you have thousands and thousands of people coming into many of these, arriving into many of these concentration camps, many perishing in these camps and others essentially managing to survive by employing a variety of ways, whether it's bribes, assistance from this resistance network. In this context, resistance is something that uh, manifests itself in ways in which, again, many of these couriers will bring assistance into these camps, the way in which some of them are going to facilitate the escape of certain people, particularly overnight from these camps. We have accounts of some pharmacists secretly going into the camps and not just taking care of children, but also vaccinating them. So, so there is this kind of effort that is taking place in many of these camps. At the same time, within the camps, Armenians are organizing. And this local organized effort tries to figure out ways of coordinating with many of these couriers in order for this assistance to arrive there and for it to be distributed in a way that is fair. Now, again, this is a perilous journey and many of the couriers will be killed. 
And in fact, some of the couriers that I talk about, I only, I, we know very little about them because in one case, I just know the first name of the person. And I use, I refer to him by his first name. This is a man who essentially for the entire duration of the war until his murder is making trip after trip from Aleppo to these camps in order to provide assistance. So many of these people are lost to history and we know very little about them. What we do know is that those who survived these camps and ultimately the massacres in 1916 owe a lot to the efforts of these couriers and to the efforts of those in the camps who are organizing to coordinate and work with them. One example of self-organization in the camp is that there were handwritten newspapers that were prepared. So there were journalists who would wait for a new convoy to arrive from different parts of the Ottoman Empire and ask them questions about what they witnessed along the way. What is the condition of the, uh, the towns that they pass through as they're being marched uh, sometimes for hundreds of miles? And then write them down. And then these handwritten newspapers will be passed around inside the camps. I have used as examples a couple of such newspapers that have survived in my work. That's really fascinating. And I think the point about how much of this resistance work is done by ordinary people who aren't, you know, we don't, as you say, in one case, we don't even know their full names. They're too busy doing the actual work to leave behind much evidence of its having been done. Sources about the Armenian genocide have been hard to come by, I understand. Could you say a little bit about, you know, how, how did you work in that context where information is sparse and so much more like remains to come to light? So although we have a wealth of information that comes from Western missionaries, diplomatic archives, diplomatic records of European countries, the United States, Russia, and beyond, multiple witnesses, Arabs, Muslims, others who on site, who have you know, accounts, diaries, memoirs. So there's a wealth of information. But some of these efforts require understanding and appreciating these efforts and contextualizing them within the broader historiography it required looking at long neglected documents, looking at uh, long neglected records, primarily in Armenian. So my uh, book, the, the Resistance Network, heavily relies on Armenian diaries, accounts, minutes of meetings, as I try to sort of triangulate, use Ottoman sources, German sources, US diplomatic documents, and at the same time, bring in the Armenian sources and, and, and accounts in conversation with them. Because for instance, when missionaries are writing about what they are doing, that is at the core, at the center of what they talk about. They say very little about the person who is going and risking his or her life as a courier and is dying along the way. While we have pages and pages of information about their work because that's what they're reporting and that's what they are emphasizing. So bringing these pieces together was integral part of, of the work that I, I tried to do here. And, and as such, I owe much to the survivors who essentially, whose accounts shaped the backbone of this, of this book. And, and their descendants who shared the memoirs, open family archives, shared unpublished manuscripts with me. And I thank them in, in the book, in the introduction and elsewhere, because ultimately it is through their stories and their accounts, these, these accounts that I was able to reconstruct this history and really see and be witness to unyielding resistance in places where scholarship and public discourse have often only seen victimhood. So oftentimes the agency of the victim is reinforced when we listen to the voices of the victims. And in that sense, I think 
that is one of the ways in which I have tried to contribute the scholarship on the Armenian genocide and in general to thinking about genocide and mass violence. One of the things that I really took away from your book um, or have been mulling over, you know, having spent some time with your book, is the drawn out and decentralized process of this kind of mass violence and how many opportunities there are for different kinds of resistance than we traditionally think of. You know, as we look around at, at a world where there's increasing violence against Asian American and Pacific Island people in the United States of late, endless racial hostility in this country, and uh, a lot of opportunities for things to head off down really terrible paths. I wonder what kinds of lessons you draw as a historian from the Armenian genocide, and particularly from the kinds of you know networked resistance that you look at in the book. One of the issues that I think about often, and it's sort of the central concern of mine in this book as well, is what the targeted group is doing to react, to push back against these acts, these crimes, these examples that you give. And I always see efforts, you know, many of us are interested in engaging, helping, solidarity, support. And oftentimes, in that kind of environment, in that kind of uh, enthusiasm, we forget to pause for a second and ask, what about the local activists? What do they want? What are they pursuing? And how can we help them? So how can we stand by them and follow their lead when we are uh, also talking about what we are doing to help them? How much are we centering our experience or the experience of our NGO or what our NGO or organization is doing or human rights organization is doing at the expense of the efforts that the targeted group has engaged in? And are we, as we try to help, also silencing or pushing to the margins these important efforts that are coming from the very communities that are being targeted. I think these are important questions, I think, in this day and age, in, an, in a period here even in the United States, to ask every time we try to help as individuals, as organizations, and perhaps this is something that this book will encourage readers to do. The Armenian case that I look at challenges thinking about mass violence, and you know, target groups' reaction to it, and intervention. I show how, for example, community structures, key connectors, what kind of role they play when a group is under attack, and the importance of working with them, not putting them to work, which is how sometimes you know, NGOs and uh, outside actors, humanitarians, will think about these issues, and devising and implementing any kind of humanitarian action. So in many ways, without this kind of synergy, any kind of humanitarian work, any kind of human rights work will fall short if it does not engage with and stand next to these indigenous local efforts to change the reality of many of these people. Yeah, I really appreciate your emphasis on the local there. I think that it's so easy in our kind of decentralized but in intensely connected world to feel like action on Twitter or sort of larger like political gestures are enough to, to make change when really it's on the ground in these neighborhoods, the people that we're encountering, you know, as we go about our day-to-day -day lives who are suffering and those who are trying to fight back against it. It seems like such an important lesson from your book is to think about those, as you say, working together with and alongside people who require that kind of support. Absolutely. You know, uh, Kurt, one of the things that I came across over and over again when I was reading missionary accounts is how almost invariably Armenians were portrayed as these poor, helpless, dying 
people, while the very people who are risking their lives to connect between, to connect these missionaries to the people who are in, in those horrendous condition, conditions are themselves also Armenians. Oftentimes from the very group that is being targeted and deported and killed. And therefore it's, it's critical to not think about these kinds of interventions as ones where we are coming in as saviors and seeing ourselves as just, just one part of, of a chain, of, an, of, a, of a group effort where in, inevitably there are people on the ground who are doing most of the heavy lifting. Yeah. And in a way, that's the that's the logic of genocide, you know, playing out. It's saying the, these people are victims and therefore they, in some sense, you know, require our help. Or if we're you know, of a perverse and violent mindset, have somehow earned what is coming, you know, what they're what they're dealing with. And, and really, I think your book does a great job of changing that narrative or, or asking us to confront, you know, the sort of insufficiency of that narrative and recognize that focusing on the, the victims is a way of returning something of their subjectivity and their ability to actually resist what was happening. Absolutely. Well, Kautchik, I think we've come to about the end of our time together today. You know, this has been a, a really enlightening conversation and it's been a uh, heavy subject matter. And I really appreciate your taking the time to go through some of it with me and to share uh, the work that you did on your book. I learned so much and others will get a lot out of the work. So I thank you for taking the time today. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Kachik Meridian's book, The Resistance Network, The Armenian Genocide and Humanitarianism in Ottoman Syria, 1915 through 1918, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. Kachik is on Twitter at K-H-A-T-C-H-O. And he's also available on Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo, and the Michigan State University occupies the ancestral traditional and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.